Surely there never was a fight better worth making than the one which we are in. Welcome to Bully Pulpit. That was Teddy Roosevelt. I'm Bob Garfield. Episode 6, Crime of the Century. The prime cause of harm generated by the smoking is the outcome of the combustion. Okay, when you burn the cigarette, when you burn the tobacco, you release the thousands of the chemicals. Many of those chemicals are very bad for the human body. If you eliminate the combustion, you actually can achieve a very, very significant reductions in exposures to the toxicants. In our last episode, we heard from Philip Morris International CEO Jacek Olczyk as he boasted about Philip Morris's plan to convert half of its business to non-combustible tobacco products by the year 2025, a strategy that impresses Wall Street and part of the public health community but to others is merely reminiscent of a century of big tobacco manipulation, cynicism, and fatal lies. In that story, we heard briefly from Alan Brandt, professor of the history of science at Harvard and author of The Cigarette Century, The Rise, Fall, and Deadly Persistence of the Product that Defined America. This week, we return to the professor and the subject of The Cigarette Century, So Deadly and Corrupt. Alan, welcome to Bully Pulpit. Thanks so much for having me. The tobacco industry has a long and dark history, going back at least to the early 50s, when the evidence of smoking's dangers became an existential threat to cigarette sales. Can you tell me what the research was at that turning point? A group of early epidemiologists, both in England and the United States, began to study smokers and what happened to their health. And they began to study lung cancer patients and what their smoking behaviors had been. And all of them reached one absolute conclusion, which was that smoking was actually a cause of lung cancer and likely other diseases that would be studied subsequently, especially heart disease, stroke, and other cancers. So, of course, the industry said, oh, my God, this is terrible news. We can see that we're merchants of death, and we will henceforth get out of the cigarette business and into selling wintergreen candy, right? That's not exactly what happened. Here you have a multi-million dollar industry confronted by scientific evidence that their product causes disease and death. And so the tobacco executives started to put their heads together and figure out how do we respond to this? Do we say the science is bad? Do we just disregard it? Do we try to incriminate the scientists who produce this? And eventually what happens is that in December 1953, the six major CEOs of the big tobacco companies get together at the Plaza Hotel in New York to consider the way forward because they knew that they were in a massive crisis in terms of their industry. And they called in probably the nation's most powerful and influential public relations executive, John Hill, to consult with them. And he listened to them for a while, and then he said, I don't think 
you understand how to do this. What you need to do is create uncertainty. Don't deny that these studies have appeared. Just say, there's much more we need to learn. We need more science. What the tobacco industry really introduced in the early to mid-50s was the idea, how can we confuse science? How can we obscure what's coming out? How can we make people say, there's a debate, we just don't know. 70 years ago, the research showed the correlation between cigarette smoking and cancer based on health outcomes and behaviors for large study populations. But it wasn't laboratory science on a cellular level. So this opened some space for creating doubt, circumstantial evidence, blah, blah, blah. You have identified the industry's three-prong strategy. Yes. The three points were essentially that the evidence of the harms of smoking were inconclusive, that cancers had many causes, and what we would really need is much more intensive research to resolve a publicly important question, and that no one was more committed to the idea of learning more, investigating more completely, and resolving this question. And then, of course, if we ever do find anything in cigarettes that might be harmful, we will take the lead in fixing our product and assuring the health of the public. Yeah, like this Chesterfield commercial from the late 50s. The interviewer was a familiar face to audiences of the day, George Fenneman. This new electronic miracle, Accuray, means that everything from auto tires to ice cream, battleship steel to cigarettes, can be made better and safer for you. Now meet Mr. Bert Choate, brilliant young president of industrial nucleonics. Well, Bert, exactly what is Accuray? Well, George, it is a device by which a stream of electrons passes through and analyzes the product while it is actually being made. They transmit what they see to this electronic brain, which adjusts the production machinery for errors down to millionths of an inch. Well, now let's ask the question so many people ask me. How does Accuray make Chesterfield a better cigarette than was ever possible before? Every cigarette made with Accuray control contains a more precise measure of perfectly packed tobaccos. So Chesterfield smokes smoother, without hot spots or a hard draw. That's why Chesterfield tastes better and is best for you. Fenneman, as irony would have it, was most famous for being the announcer of the quiz show You Bet Your Life, here saying that Chesterfields are better for you, like Kent's Micronite Filter and Marlboro Lights were supposedly, but not actually, better for you. As more irony would have it, Fenneman subsequently died of emphysema. But apart from this sort of, excuse the expression, ad puffery, they stacked the deck with putatively legitimate scientists. They found a group that was hostile to epidemiology, that was committed to the idea that cancers have to be genetic. And then the other thing they did is they gave out a lot of money to scientists. So in my research, I found a young scientist. His grant from the government had run out. And they were very good at identifying these folks who were not really fully succeeding and saying, well, we can give you a grant and here's what we want you to do. And then when they produced papers, they edited the papers, they turned them around. 
whenever there was a paper that seemed to be hesitant about the connection between smoking and disease, they would make sure it appeared in the press. And they really said there are two sides to this story. The media, in a sense, supported the Hill principles because the media was very committed to the idea that every story has two sides. What we now call false balance. What the climate science world is based on are the principles of what today are widely called the tobacco industry playbook. So you set up these like industry-funded so-called independent research agencies, you know, the Center for Indoor Air Research. And what it turns out is that they're funded by industry and they collect scientists and materials as if they were independent. And one of the arguments I'm prepared to make is the tobacco industry invented disinformation at this scale. When it came to influencing the public and manipulating behavior, it turns out that these were not inexperienced people. As you wrote in the previous half of the 20th century, the industry, quote, took a product that had existed at the cultural periphery and remade it into one of the most popular, successful, and widely used items of the early 20th century. You know, it's hard to imagine that there was a time when cigarette smoking was relatively marginal. How did they engineer its path from marginal to ubiquitous? The rise of popular smoking is one of the most remarkable stories in the history of mass consumer culture. The industry, through some very brilliant marketing and thinking, was able to take a product little used on the margins of society, actually quite a stigmatized product late 19th century, and absolutely turn it around. They were very aware of the power of mass media, and they focused on making it for youth and making it cool. They focused on making it sexy, and they realized that they had a potential to manipulate the culture. There was sort of the notion that cigarettes and American culture didn't fit, that we emphasized productivity, individual responsibility, no idleness. A lot of our culture was hostile to pleasure, and they inverted this. There are many examples of people like Edward Bernays, who was a giant early 20th century thinker in advertising and public relations, and he hired women to march in the Easter Day parade smoking cigarettes because women, it had been thought, shouldn't smoke in public. There were a lot of issues about women taking up smoking, and he associated cigarettes with women's rights and suffrage. So there was a strategic approach to popularizing cigarettes that was incredibly effective. Bernays went to the Hollywood studios and asked them to portray characters that smoke and brought cigarettes into the movies in an intense way. It didn't just happen. It's just an unbelievable story. Almost no one smokes in 1900, especially not cigarettes. And by 1950, 1960, 
were very close to a majority of all adults smoking. And the impact that that had on health and continues to have on health has just been devastating. The Hollywood story is just extraordinary, from Ronald Reagan to Mary Tyler Moore to the quintessentially rugged and macho John Wayne. Well, after you've been making a lot of strenuous scenes, you like to sit back and enjoy a cool, mild, good-tasting cigarette. And that's just what camels are. Mild and good-tasting, pack after pack. I know, I've been smoking them for 20 years. So why don't you try them yourself? You'll see what I mean. And Winston brokered a truly historic celebrity deal. Or, anyway, prehistoric. Winston packs rich tobaccos specially selected and specially processed for good flavor in filter smoking. Yeah, Barney, Winston tastes good, like a cigarette chug. Yes, decades before the cartoon Joe Camel outraged the public by targeting kids, R.J. Reynolds managed to co-opt the appeal of Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. The point being, though, that before anyone ever used the word influencers, Big Tobacco purchased endorsement from whomever conferred authority? Many sports figures, movie actors, famous people, doctors, and they helped create this sort of cult of influence and personality. Doctors. Doctors. Yes, folks, the pleasing mildness of a camel is just as enjoyable to a doctor as it is to you or me. And according to this nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. It worked for a very long time until it began to erode because of the concerns that began to arise in the late 1950s, but especially the 1960s, about negligence and responsibility for the tobacco companies through torts and suits. Product liability. Yes. And so the lawyers kind of took over the strategy by 1960, certainly by 1964. And they said, we don't have any choice because otherwise the liabilities to the industry and information that we know it's harmful would undo the financial structure of the universe of the industries. And there are many ironies about this, like you sort of think, well, labeling cigarettes was a public health benefit. And at first the industry opposed labeling, but then the lawyers shift, they say, well, we actually need a label to protect us from liability. So, you know, the first label said caution, Cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. Actually, its biggest implication was that it protected the companies from liability. And if anyone said, well, how could you have not warned us? They said, well, we did warn you. The companies would say, well, you were aware that there was a label on the package, weren't you? And the litigant would say, yes, I was. And then they say, well, how can you hold our company responsible? And that's the way it went for a long time, really, until the 90s. And then a variety of forces began to direct very damning evidence to the companies. And one is it became very clear that the companies had maintained high levels of nicotine 
to keep smokers addicted. But in April 1994, at Congressman Henry Waxman's House hearing on tobacco, under questioning from Congressman Ron Wyden, seven CEOs of major tobacco companies lied under oath, not only about augmenting the effect of nicotine in their products, but that nicotine was the drug that hooked smokers to begin with. The Surgeon General, the National Institutes of Health, the World Health Organization, and others were unanimous, but... Let me uh, begin my questioning on the matter of uh, whether or not nicotine is addictive. Let me ask you first, and I'd like to just go down the row, uh, whether each of you believes uh, that nicotine is not addictive. I heard virtually all of you touch on it, and just yes or no. Do you believe nicotine is not addictive? I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. Mr. Johnston. Uh, Congressman, cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definitions of addiction. There is no intoxication. Right. We'll, we'll take that as a no, and again, time is short. If you could just, I think each of you believe nicotine is not addictive. We just would like to have this for the record. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And I too believe that nicotine is not addictive. So that was one thing. The industry fought this tooth and nail, but the evidence really was rising all the time that smokers could create risks for non-smokers, especially indoors. And if Americans have a few that it's up to me and I'll take my risks. They're very sensitive to the idea of risks being imposed on them by others. And the change in indoor smoking bans, workplace smoking bans, getting smoking off of airplanes, all these things, I think, undermined the notion that this is a good and healthy product. The one other issue that I really wanted to raise here, though, is that the industry had always been focused on getting young smokers. They had to go get younger smokers if they were going to, the word they use, replace the smokers who were dying. And the creation of the tobacco market was in the youth market. So in the 90s, and a lot of people remember this, you know, there was the famous Joe Camel comic book campaign. Joe Camel was a cartoon. Yes, a cartoon character, totally cool, flying jets, getting women, hanging out in clubs. And a lot of the information from the development of that campaign is now fortunately in the archives because R.J. Reynolds was sued. The commission's complaint alleges that this campaign was used to promote an addictive and dangerous product to children and adolescents under the age of 18, and that this practice is illegal. That was Jody Bernstein, director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection in May of 1997. And so I think these things together, the idea that secondhand smoke was harmful to others, that the companies had manipulated cigarettes to be more highly addictive at a time that they said we're trying to protect the public, the appeal to kids. These are the things that led to 
the kind of crisis of the industry that in some ways it remains in and is looking for strategies to emerge from. They ultimately would give power to litigation that was able to do what legislatures and regulators could not do, uh, and that was to hold the industry accountable. Yes, there was a shift in litigation strategy in the 90s from smokers who had been harmed being the plaintiffs to a very innovative strategy where the state said, well, we pay all these monies to take care of people who your companies have caused to be ill, and you need to compensate our states for the healthcare expenses that we have had associated with smokers. And it was in the many billions of dollars. And so this state's litigation brought by attorneys general turned out to be in many ways quite successful and resulted in what's called the master settlement agreement at the end of the 90s that agreed to pay the states $246 billion to compensate them for the cost that they had had. Again, in 1997, this was Mississippi Attorney General Mike Moore taking a victory lap before the assembled Washington press. We wanted this industry to have to change the way they do business, and we have done that. We wanted the industry to stop marketing their products to our kids, and we have come up with a comprehensive plan that will do that. We wanted to do something that would punish this industry for their past misconduct, and we have done that. And we wanted to make sure that every single person, not only in America, but this entire world, knows the truth about what the tobacco industry has done to the people of this world over the last 50 years. And we are satisfied that we have done that. A quarter of a trillion dollars, momentous for sure, but the notion that this doomed the tobacco industry worldwide, well, it did not play out that way, did it? It didn't at all. And we have a notion here in the United States and many countries in Western Europe that we've seen this dramatic decline in smoking. It's no longer a favored cultural behavior. Many, many thousands, millions of people have quit smoking or died from smoking. But the industry had a long-term strategy that said smoking's on decline in wealthy, highly educated societies. So where can we effectively market cigarettes now? So let's talk about that, because the industry now says, yes, cigarettes cause cancer, heart disease, hypertension, emphysema, and a host of other conditions. And it is our strategy to reduce our revenues associated with combustible cigarettes by 50%, I think by 2035. I think that's the timeline. And the elephant in the room is the other 50% of their revenues. So on the one hand, they're acknowledging that they 
are selling a lethal product. On the other hand, they're saying, and we will continue to do so to the tune of billions and billions of dollars and hundreds of millions of lives. One scarcely knows where to begin. Most people think that 100 million people died in the 20th century as a result of smoking, and that in this century, one billion people will die, 10 times as many, because of the explosion of combustible cigarettes around the world. So the idea that we're just a responsible company trying to mitigate the harms that our principal product has produced for over a century. Many of my colleagues who have advocated with me for tobacco control thought, well, maybe this is the answer. There would be a harm reduction product that would vastly reduce the health impacts of combustible tobacco and lead to a radical change in the epidemiology of tobacco-related deaths in the 21st century. They believe that we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But what they also realized is people don't start using nicotine products as adults. So we created a remarkable human-made health crisis through the aggressive introduction of e-cigarettes and vaping without any scientific evidence that they actually served harm reduction or only minimal and often industry-sponsored evidence that they could do that. And so it's made me very skeptical of an industry that says, we learned our lesson, we have great products. The scorpion stings the frog to death and says, it is my nature. Yes, and in these instances, profits and more profits obscured the consequences. And we see that, honestly, with Purdue Pharma. We see it at Juul. We see it in many of the major energy companies. And these strategies of we can control this space has really been incredibly harmful to all of our human health. I already asked this question in a different way, but I'm going to offer this one up as well. Just putting aside the unknown effect of non-combustibles, even if it achieves its uh, smoke-free goal, half of Philip Morris's revenue will still come from cigarettes people set fire to and inhale, which means millions and millions more deaths around the world. The estimate I saw was six to seven million souls per year around the world, which is a Holocaust per year. If Philip Morris is suddenly so enlightened, by what moral calculus can it continue to kill millions of human beings with their products? It's been a question for the industry since the middle of the 20th century. They have a product that's highly addictive and incredibly harmful, and it's incredibly profitable. It involves a lot of powerful people losing a lot of money. And they just can't give it up. That's a gigantic problem in relationship to capitalism and health. 
We talked about the playbook, how the strategy forged in January 1953 in the Plaza Hotel has not only dictated Big Tobacco's moves, but also those of the gun lobby and the fossil fuels industry, I don't know, big sugar. Yes. And other industries that cause direct harm to the people who legally use their products. And those initiatives in those other industries have us on the brink of planetary destruction. I mean, I don't think I'm hyperventilating here. The techniques that we have described have created and fostered so many existential harms that one wonders what chance have we? Can we make the case that we're discussing crimes against humanity here and the tobacco industry is accountable not only for the deaths from its products, but from the toll of these other industries who embraced tobacco's game plan? Well, I think these are massive crimes. And I'm not without hope, but I do think the kinds of crises that we're becoming more aware of have the potential to motivate changes in our politics, our policy, our regulation. So the combination that we've seen this year of COVID-19, of radical changes in the climate that are changing our weather and threatening health in that way have to be taken seriously immediately. I think it's going to take changes in our political strategies and orientations to do that. But the revelations of how these companies behave is an important element to that and understanding what they're doing, how they're doing it, exposing the playbook when it's being used so successfully is a critical element of building the will to really take this on. Alan, with a little bit of trepidation, I'd like to one more time revisit the infamous Plaza Hotel Conference and offer a historical analogy. In early 1942, the Nazi High Command held a secret conference in a villa in the Berlin suburb Wannsee to forge the final solution for the so-called Jewish question namely the destruction of the Jews in Europe. So that was fateful in the worst way. Now, the meeting you're describing that took place not quite 12 years later, has the tobacco industry convened at the plaza to forge a strategy for the so-called, these were their words, tobacco question. In this case, by destroying scientific consensus through disinformation and doubt. Now, I'll get flack for this uh, along Godwin's law lines because the Holocaust claimed six million Jewish lives. But in the balance of the 20th century, tobacco claimed on the order of 350 million human lives, which I guess until the advent of the climate crisis may have been history's most lethal crime against humanity. That grim analogy. Is it overheated? Is it unhelpful? Is it irresponsible? 
I wouldn't say it's unhelpful, but I do think that it's probably good to look at this kind of industrial impact on death and disease in a slightly different context than the Holocaust and Nazi decision-making. They both do reflect a fundamental disregard for human life and a series of psychological rationalizations that are sold to the public and are based in fundamental misconceptions about what we know and how we know it. But as you say, it's a politically fraught analogy. The notion of these people were evil and they did something horrendous. It sometimes can obstruct our ability to see the mechanisms of work at how industries have exploited public health for incredible financial gain and greed. Alan, thank you very much. It's really been great to talk to you. Alan Brandt is professor of the history of science at Harvard and author of The Cigarette Century, The Rise, Fall, and Deadly Persistence of the Product that Defined America. All right, we're done here. What you just heard was an abridged version of Crime Against Humanity. For a complete hearing of my conversation with Professor Brandt, do venture beyond our sturdy but attractive paywall and become a paid subscriber to Booksmart Studios. You'll get longer form interviews, access to the hosts, and in my case, my weekly text column, which is, let's just say, uncompromising because that sounds better than indelicate or brutal. Now then, Bully Pulpit is produced by Mike Volo and Matthew Schwartz. Our theme was composed by Julie Miller and the team at Harvest Creative Services in Lansing, Michigan. Bully Pulpit is a production of Booksmart Studios. I'm Bob Garfield. <laughs>